Good morning, Orchard Church. I said good morning. morning. What did you think of our new worship leader? I told him backstage, I said, um, I got some good news, Jake. You can come in and work another week. (laughs) Take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation as we continue our series, uh, verse by verse through the book of Revelation. If you're a guest today, welcome to the Orchard Church. This is the way we predominantly study the Bible here at the Orchard. We go to a book of the Bible, we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we work our way all the way through as God has laid it out. And just last week, we started into um, our most recent study called The Return of the King through the book of Revelation. I feel like I'm a little loud. James, am I like overwhelming anybody? Are we okay? All right. Um, We started that last week, and so uh, last week was kind of the hook. And so I talked to a lot of you guys after last Sunday, and I got some emails and responses this week, and most of you said, okay, we're hooked, and we're ready to dive into this exciting book, the book of Revelation. It's on page uh, 493, if you're using one of the Bibles provided. We're going to go to chapter 1, verse 1, and today we're going to do sort of the full-blown introduction. But I want to begin by reading some things to you guys that were right out the pages of the news uh, just in the last couple of weeks. This is not something that's several years old, but this is just a week or two old. Let me just read you a couple of things. This is from the World Tribune, September 28th uh, this year. Obama won't stop Israeli attack on Iran. That seems imminent. Um, Routers, September 23rd. Israel attack on Iran is unavoidable, it said, was the headline. USA Today said amidst mounting concern that Israel is planning to launch a preemptive strike against Iran's nuclear facilities, some are warning that they don't have the firepower to completely wipe out the Islamic Republic's suspected weapons program. And in the case of an Israeli strike, there's fear of an Iranian retaliation like nothing the nation of Israel has ever faced before. This was a recent study uh, the United Nations did. They, they did a study on earthquakes and the, the rapid succession of earthquakes and the devastation and how, how much more um, we're seeing earthquakes take place and the magnitude of earthquakes. And they, in this study they found that from 1926 to 1950 there was a combined death toll in all the earthquakes in 24 years of about 350,000 people from 1926 to 1950. On December 26, 2004, one earthquake, 9.0 in Indonesia, killed 300,000 people in one earthquake alone. January 12, 2010 of this year, as we know very well, there was an earthquake in Haiti, 7.0 in the city of Port-au-Prince. Over 250,000 lives were lost. That's just in two earthquakes when there were only about 350,000 in 24 year period. And we could go on and on and on with the earthquakes that have continued to happen and the magnitude. They tell us now that over about 15,000 to 20,000 people every year in the world are now killed by earthquakes. 
Brazil, this came out a couple of weeks ago, Brazil warns of a one-world currency. They said the world is in the grip of a currency war with leading nations using uh, devaluation to solve economic problems. Brazilian finance minister Guido Mantega has warned in remarks reported by uh, Sao Paulo, we're in the midst of an international currency war, a general weakening of currency. He said in remarks reported by the Financial Times newspaper, this threatens us because it takes away our competitiveness. And the article goes on to talk about the possibility of a one world currency. Um, this came out uh, just last week. Australia faces worst plague of locusts in 75 years. Australia's Darling River is running with water again after a drought in the middle of a decade, reduced, which reduced it to a trickle. But the rains feeding the continent's fourth longest river are not the undiluted good news you might expect. For the cloudbursts are also create ideal conditions for an unwelcome pest, the Australian plague locust. The warm, wet weather that prevailed last summer meant that three generations of locusts were born in that year. Each went up to 150 times larger than the previous generation. And we could go on and on and on with articles like that. And you say, why did I read those? Well, as you study the scriptures, the Bible predicts those kinds of events happening in the last days just before the return of Jesus Christ. That's why that's significant. Now you can always go back in history the last 2,000 years and you can find earthquakes and you can find pestilences like locusts and you can find wars and things like that. But never have we seen it in the last 2,000 years so many things happening at the same time in such rapid succession as we're seeing them right now. I mean, everything is just falling into place and, and lining up. You know, Paul described the second coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and he likened it to a mother who's getting ready to go into labor and have a baby. And he basically said, you know, mothers understand this, the, the stronger and the harder and the quicker and the closer together those birth pains are and those contractions, you know the closer the baby is to coming. And he says, when you see more and more of the things that the Bible talks about that are going to happen before the return of Christ, when you see them bigger and quicker and more numerous in rapid succession, know that there is something coming. It's not a baby, but it's Jesus Christ. You know, I learned a little bit about uh, having babies when, when Shelley had our two children. And I, I learned uh, probably more than I wanted to learn. And when she had Caleb, uh, you know, we it was our first child. And so, I mean, like that very first, some of y'all can identify with this, the very first contraction that she had, boom, we were off to the hospital. This is it, it's time. You know, and she goes in, they hook her all up, and we're there for like five or six hours. And they're like, you know, your contractions are not getting any stronger. They're not getting any closer together. False alarm, go home. So we're like, oh, you know, she was so ready to have that baby and we were so excited. So went home, a week went by, and this time she had a little bit harder contractions. And, you know, now they were like, you know, an hour together, you know, instead of two hours. And so we're like, this is it. So we rush off to the hospital again, and they put her on the stuff. And I think we did that like three times. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? We had like three false alarms. And then finally, you know, we go in, and, and she has Caleb. And, and uh, you know, it was a pretty long, you know, uh, 
delivery, and but she was able to get the epidural. You know, that's like the gift from heaven. And she she got the epidural, and you know, just as the contractions were starting to get unbearable and strong, they gave her the epidural, I and mean, then she was fine. I mean, she really she said, you know, I, I felt great, you know, and and just it really was was not that bad. And so that's a little infomercial for epidurals, ladies. You know, there's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt not have an epidural. So that's good news for you, ladies, this morning. You you do with that what you want, but she she had Caleb, and and you know it, it was a, a pretty good experience. That's even in her own words, not just my words. It was you know of course a good experience for me. But then when Caitlin came along, our, our second child, um, we waited. You know, we were like, we're not going to go do this. You know, first contraction comes along, we're going to rush off to the hospital. We learned our lesson. We're experienced parents now. And so we waited and we waited and our contractions were stronger and stronger and getting closer and closer and harder and harder. And so we waited to the very last minute and we go into the hospital and they put her in there. And so, I mean, she's she's really in pain now at this point. You know, we had been in there like 30 minutes and, and when we went in, it was, it was getting really close. And so she's, you know, she's like, epidural! And they're like, honey, we're sorry. We don't have time for an epidural. You're ready to go. The baby's coming right now. You know, I mean, it's it's time. And I remember, you know, I was remembering back to the first delivery with the epidural. And so I'm on the phone, you know, giving the play-by-play to everybody. Like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. Friends. She's at this many centimeters, and they're really fast. And, oh, yeah, they're really strong. And all of a sudden, I remember I'm on the phone, and I'm all excited. And I feel this hand just grab me, and fingernails dig into my wrist and I, I, I turn and and I saw a side of my wife I've never seen before nor since and I just remember her go get off the phone yes yes I gotta go I gotta go and boom I mean within like minutes Caitlin Caitlin is born and you know that's what the Bible tells us about the return of Christ You know, we see certain things happen here and there, but boy, when we see those labor pains coming stronger and faster and closer together, and I'm just telling you guys, you can go check it out. There's a really cool website called RaptureReady.com, and every day they put on news stories that line up with Scripture. And I mean, there's just pages and pages of them day after day, and you can see that we are very close to the return of Christ. Now today, as we get into Revelation, we are going to do an introduction. It's very important we do a full introduction with this book, just as we've done with the other eight books that we've studied here at the Orchard Church in the last five years, because we always want to keep the Bible in its what? Context. The three most important um, words when it comes to Bible study, the three most important rules of Bible study are context, context, context. So it's important that we get today the context of this book and what we're studying and who wrote it and when was it written and why was it written. And and it's going to give us some handles today and really help us get a bearing on where we're going in the book of Revelation and lay a good foundation for the journey through Revelation that we're going to take. You see, Revelation, as many of you know, has probably been one of the most misinterpreted, misconstrued, and misunderstood books in the Bible. Would you agree? Say yes. A lot of people are afraid of it. They they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to study it. But if we will just get it in its context, verse by verse, as God has laid it out, we will be able to get a handle on this book. And there's a lot of things we can clearly understand. We can certainly understand what this book is really all about. The things we don't understand, one day we will. And we're not going to get freaked out about them. We're not going to worry about them. But I'm going to give you some things today that are going to give us a 
to handle as we dive into the book of Revelation. You see, we know that the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. Probably more than any other book in the Bible, it's filled with prophecies. And there have been a lot of prophecies. People have come and said, this is going to happen. You know, there have been a lot of people, I may bring this to you in the next week or two, that have predicted the day that Jesus is going to return. You know, there was one guy who said, 88 reasons Jesus is going to come in 1988. Do you remember that? And then he, he's like, he, he revised it. And, and there have been all kinds of predictions but, and, and prophecies, and they've come and gone, and most of them have been wrong. But the prophecies in the book of Revelation have withstood the test of time. The prophecies that John was given 2,000 years ago are going to come true. And they're going to happen. And this one has remained. So uh, it's so exciting to be able to study uh, this book together. Let's open in prayer and then dive into the introduction today. Father, thank you for the worship. Lord, that we not only worship you in song, but in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we, we pray that our worship would not end on Sunday morning, but it would continue throughout the week as we bring honor and glory to you through our lives. And as we spend time with you in your word, and as we continue to worship you now, Lord, as you speak to us through your word, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, remove any of my thoughts, remove me from the picture, and that I would just be able to be a vessel and a mouthpiece to proclaim your word today in this incredible book, the book of Revelation, and that we would see this book for the reason you gave it to us, that we would, Lord, keep the focus on what you intended the book of Revelation to be, the revelation of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at uh, seven things today. If we don't get to all seven today, we'll slice it in half and we'll finish next week. We're going to try to get through all seven of them today. It's interesting if you were here last week that we have chosen seven things today in our introduction. That was not divinely inspired, but I thought it would be neat if we did seven. We're going to first look at the title. Let's talk about the title of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Here it is. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the title. It's right there in the first five verses of this book. Many of your Bibles probably have it right there on the top. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an inspired title. Now the word revelation means to uncover, reveal, or make known. That's what the word revelation means. To uncover, reveal, or make known. It comes from the Greek word apokalypso, which is where we get our English word apocalypse. How many of you guys have heard that word apocalypse? Now when you hear that word used today, apocalypse, which is the Greek word uh, for revelation, don't you usually think of, ooh, scary, you know, disaster, chaos, mayhem. This apocalypse word has become synonymous with those kind of things, and that's really not what the word apocalypse means at all. It just simply means to reveal. It means to uncover. It means to make known. It's actually a positive thing. It's interesting how words get changed around. Um, the title today for our message is Pulling Back the Curtains because that's what God is going to do for us as we give the introduction. And as we go into the book of Revelation, He will reveal, He will uncover. God's goal in Revelation, I want you to understand this, is not to conceal the prophecy, but to reveal his plan for all of humanity and the end of the world. That's the plan and the purpose of the book of Revelation. And God is going to pull back the curtains for us. It's kind of like, you know, one of my favorite movies. Yes, it is one of my favorite movies, The Wizard of Oz. All right, y'all be honest. You know, I, I meet kids nowadays, they say, what's that? They've not seen The Wizard of Oz. Parents, if you haven't shown The Wizard of Oz to your kids, you know, come on. It's a great movie. And I remember, you know, they go through that whole movie, you know, and Dorothy and her buddies, her friends are there, and they get to Oz, and, you know, the great and powerful Oz, and they're all scared to go before him and intimidated. 
And then Toto goes and pulls back the curtain, and there's this little old man back there. I am the... Close the curtain, you know. And he's revealed. And that's what's going to happen for us in the book of Revelation. God is going to pull back the curtain. That's what the title means. In Revelation, the Holy Spirit's going to pull back the curtain, allow us to see the glorified Christ and God's plan and purposes for His church and for the end of the world. That's His plan in the book of Revelation. So this is exciting to study this. You know, there are a lot of prophecies throughout the scriptures. And other books of the Bible have a lot of prophecy in them certainly as well, like the book of Daniel and others. But there is more revealed prophecy in the book of Revelation we're going to be studying than any other book in the Bible. More revealed about the future of the earth and more revealed about the future of heaven and eternity than any other book of the Bible. We know, as I said, one of the other books of prophecy about end time events is the book of Daniel. Some of you know that. Say yes. The book of Daniel, will make a lot of references to the book of Daniel. Daniel and Revelation have a lot to say that coincide with each other. But it's interesting, when Daniel was given his vision of future events and end times, God specifically in Daniel 12.4 said, Shut up the words of this prophecy, seal them until the end. But yet, when you come to the book of Revelation, John's book that he wrote, God tells John just the opposite of Daniel. He tells him in Revelation 22.10, do not seal the prophecy of this book. This is a book that God wants us to know about end times events in the future. He doesn't want to seal it, he wants to reveal it. And that's exciting. Now, you may ask the question, well, why? Why is it that Daniel was told to seal up the book of his prophecy and you wouldn't know it to the very end and yet John in Revelation is told not to seal it but reveal it? Well, think about this. When Daniel was given his prophecy, had Jesus even come to this earth yet? No. He had not been born. He had not gone to the cross. He had not been crucified. He had not risen. And so in the Old Testament, there were things they hadn't even understood yet because Jesus hadn't even come the first time, let alone the second time. They hadn't even seen Him yet in the flesh. But when John writes his, Jesus had already come to the earth. He had already died on the cross. He had already rose again. He had already ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of His Father. So John is able to reveal the things that would happen from that point until now. Does that help you understand the difference? Say yes. And so that's why there's a difference when John is able to reveal and yet Daniel is able to conceal. There's some other reasons, but I think that's one of the most important ones to to understand. And that God wants us to be aware that just as He came the first time, He's coming a second time. And that we're living in what has been called the last days. Now, when we talk about living in the last days, mo- most people think about, you know, we're living in the last days like the last few years or the last generation or the last century. But did you know the Bible tells us that ever since Jesus left the first time 2,000 years ago, that began the last days. And that's the last days have really been going on for 2,000 years. But I believe we are in the last of the last of the last days. Anybody else agree? Say amen. We're in the last of the last days. But those last days have been going on for a while. And as we get closer to the actual return of Christ, the prophecies in the scriptures, especially Revelation, are going to become more and more clear to us and understandable to us. I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard of Schofield. Maybe some of you have a Schofield study Bible. Some of you, he, he has a great study Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible Study Bible. A hundred years ago, Schofield, a hundred years ago, in his Schofield study Bible, wrote this. He said, much of what is obscure now in Revelation will become much clearer as the time approaches for the second coming of Christ. And boy, is that true today. 
What he just said a hundred years ago, there are so many things that are so much clearer to us today about revelation of the return of Christ than they were even a hundred years ago. You know, it's kind of like as we're going on this journey through revelation, it's like when you're going on a, a long road trip, you know, and, and you're driving through like Kansas, you know, and you're like, man, if I could just see a tree, I would get excited. You know, if I could just see some form of civilization, you know, that, that there are people that live out here and you're driving, you know, down that long road and you're, you're driving and, you know, the, the kids are in the back and they're hungry and, you know, they need a potty break and mom and dad need a potty break and they need a snack and you're like, I don't know when the next town is going to be. You know, we haven't seen a town in like 300 miles and, you know, you're, you're going down the road and then all of a sudden you, you see something on the horizon off in the distance and it, it looks like maybe a tree, you know, and they, oh yes, we see trees and then the next thing you know, you see something that maybe looks like rooftops of houses and maybe a building or two and you're starting to get excited and then one of the kids says, Dad... I see something. What is it, son? Well, it's it's gold. And, and it looks like two humps. But I'm not totally sure. And, and you drive a little further and you get a little bit closer. And the kids are like, ah! And they're getting excited. And there's two golden arches. McDonald's! And yes, they're so excited. Mom or dad are like, oh, great. You know, they, you know McDonald's. And, and, and then as you get closer, it's obvious. And you can read the sign. And it's McDonald's. And you pull over and you get yourself a snack or an ice cream or whatever you get at McDonald's. And, and it's much clearer as you get closer. The same is true in the Bible with the book of Revelation. The closer we get to the return of Christ, the clearer things become. And we go, oh, I see it now. That makes sense. I get it. It's like you're putting together a puzzle. And you know, when you first put that puzzle together and you're starting to find these pieces, it doesn't look like anything. And then as you put each piece together, the closer you get to completion, you can see what it is. It's a house in the woods. You know, and there's a meadow, and there's trees, and, and those things become clearer. And I mean, we could go on and on this morning with the things talked about in the book of Revelation and throughout Scripture about the end times that now are so much clearer to us today than they were 50 years ago, 100 years ago. You know, I gave you a huge one last week. May 14, 1948, when the nation of Israel became a nation again and were given back their homeland. I'm telling you all, whatever you believe about that, that is huge. We went for some 1950 years, the prophecy in the Bible said the nation of Israel would be a nation in their homeland, yet they weren't. And in, on May 14, 1948, they became a nation again. They're back in their homeland. They've been there ever since, and they've been growing and growing and blossoming. I'm just telling you, that is a huge prophecy in Scripture that ought to get our attention to go, Whoa, the stage is being set. I can see it now. And now you look at the stuff going on between Israel and Iran and all of that. The battle of Armageddon is just lining right up. Some of us had the privilege to take a trip. There was about 15 of us that went to Israel in February, 1st of March of this year. And they took us up to one of the mountains that overlooked the valley of Megiddo, which is where the Bible says the battle of Armageddon will take place. And you know, it's, it's, you could see pictures, but they don't do it justice. But when you're there and you stand on that mountain and you look out and you see that valley, you can totally get it and go, I can totally see a major conflict, military conflict take place right here. And one of the, our, our, our tour guides said to us, oh, and by the way, there's a military base right down there at the bottom, right there at the valley of Megiddo. 
It's all becoming clear. You know, here's another one in Scripture, the two witnesses. In Revelation 11, we'll look at these two witnesses in detail when we get there, but I'm just trying to kind of whet your all's appetite to what we're talking about and how relevant this book is to the day we're living in. In Revelation 11, the Bible talks about during the tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation, there's going to be these two witnesses that God sends to witness to people and, and stand up for God and fire is going to come out of their mouth and devour people and this is going to be a very evil, wicked world at that time because the church is gone and the world is going to hate these two guys. They're going to kill these two guys. The Bible says in Revelation that they're going to leave their dead bodies laying in the street for three days. They don't even bury them because the whole world is so excited. You know you find Christmas in the book of Revelation chapter 11. Because the Bible says that the whole world starts sending gifts to each other. They're so excited about these two guys being dead. And it says the whole world will see this happen and watch day and night these two witnesses, dead bodies laying in the street. Now, a hundred years ago, a hundred fifty years ago, how would the whole world possibly see these two guys laying in the street and celebrate about it? Can you all see that happening today? Here we are, CNN, special report, day two of the two witnesses. I mean, you can get it on your cell phone today. People can watch it. The whole world can easily watch an event like that take place. That didn't make a whole lot of sense a hundred years ago, but it makes perfect sense today. Let me give you one more. I know many people talk about in the book of Revelation, and we'll look at it in detail. There's going to be what's called the mark of the beast, and that... The Antichrist is going to require people to take this special mark somehow on their body. It's going to be 666 and that you can't survive without this mark. You can't buy, you can't sell, you can't live without this mark, the mark of the beast. And how is it that everybody in the world is going to get this mark? Have you guys heard anything about microchips nowadays? They're already putting them in animals and now they're putting them in Alzheimer's patients so that they know where they are. I mean, we already have the technology. Everything is laid out easily to mark people and to scan people and know who they are and where they are. And the closer we get to the return of Christ, we go, I see it. I see it. I see how this could happen. Let me make a note about the title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in your Bibles, it is not the revelation of future events. That's not the title. The title is not The Revelation of Future Events. Now that's mainly why people want to study Revelation. But the title is The Revelation of, say it church, Jesus Christ. Man, I'm, that's the one thing I'm going to emphasize over and over and over in the study of the book of Revelation. We must not leave out the person from the prophecy. And the person of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ himself. That's what this book is about. Are we going to learn about some future end time events? Yes, but let's not let that take our focus of what this book is really all about. That's how people mess up a study of the book of Revelation. You see, it, notice if the title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not Revelations. Some people say, you know, they, they, they catch themselves. Oh, we're studying the book of Revelations. It's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. Because it's the revelation of one thing and one person. Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful, people can get confused in the book of Revelation by focusing on the tiniest of details and yet missing the big picture of what this book is really all about. People get caught up in what is between the toes of the bronze statue or behind the horn of the whatever. And they want to know about all that and they miss the big picture. Listen, y'all, the big picture of the book of Revelation, it's about the return of the King, Jesus Christ. 
That's what we ought to get excited about. That's what we need to focus on. All you have to do is look at the first five words. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is about Jesus. Sometimes people come to the book of Revelation and they focus too much on the obscure and they miss the obvious. Let's not miss the obvious. The book of Revelation is not about symbolism. It's about the Savior. The book of Revelation is not about just signs and wonders. It's about the second coming. The book of Revelation is not just about the mystery of 666. It's about the marvel of holy, holy, holy. In Revelation, we're going to see Jesus as prophet and priest and king to the churches. The glorified lamb sitting on a throne in heaven. Christ, who's going to be the judge of the earth. We're going to see him as the conquering king of kings and lord of lords. We're going to see him as the bridegroom ushering in his bride, the church, into a heavenly city for all eternity. That's what we want to focus on. And whatever we do as we study the Revelation, whatever you do as we study the Revelation... Here's my heart's desire, that we as a church and as individuals would get to know our Savior better in glory. Is that okay? Because that's what this book is really about. Let's talk about the author for a moment. We've looked at the title, let's talk about the author. Look at Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his her servant who? John, look at verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Look at verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion. Can you all help me with the title? Who, who, or excuse me, with the author? Who's the author? John. This is not difficult. It's the Apostle John. Now there are several different Johns mentioned in the, in the scriptures. This is the Apostle John, one of the twelve apostles. He's also the same John that wrote the fourth gospel in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke... John. It's that John. It's also the John that wrote the three epistles, the three letters of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and also wrote the book of Revelation. It was written in 95, about 95 AD. It was during the reign of Roman Emperor Titus Flavius Domitian. And I want you to understand what was going on when this guy was the emperor uh, of Rome. He commanded everyone to worship him as king of kings and lord of lords as the emperor. But John said, no, wait a minute. There's only one king of kings and lord of lords, and it's not you, Titus. It's Jesus Christ. And that was the message that he preached till the day of his death to anyone who would be willing to listen. And it was because of him preaching the gospel and sharing there is only one Lord of Lord and kings of, King of Kings and his name is Jesus. Because of that, the emperor didn't like what he was saying because it, it usurped his throne and his authority. And so he took John and he sent him to the island or the Isle of Patmos. It was a Roman colony. It was a little island just off the coast of Asia Minor in the Aegean Sea. And that's, it makes sense why... When you understand where John was at on the Isle of Patmos, he was exiled there, so he wouldn't preach the gospel of Jesus any longer. That 26 times in the book of Revelation, John uses the word sea. Because at that time he was on an island of the sea. I gave you guys some pictures. This is a picture today right here of uh, the Isle of Patmos. Um, it is in the Aegean Sea. You can kind of see a map. It's a little hard to see, but it's right there, just off the coast. That is the Isle of Patmos. It's actually inhabited today by about 3,000 people that live there. You can actually go visit the Isle of Patmos. 
Now how did John receive this message? If he's the author, how did he receive all these revelations? Well, the scripture tells us in verse 1 here that God the Father gave it to his son who gave it to an angel who gave it to John. Now a lot of people have speculated over who this angel is. We don't know for sure. We don't know if it was Michael, Gabriel, uh, the angel of the Lord. We're not sure. We just know it was an angel, one of God's messengers. That was predominantly how John received this message from God. But as we'll study this, sometimes uh, God will uh, just speak directly to John through Jesus. Jesus would speak directly to John. We're going to see that in just a moment here in chapter 1. Uh, there's other times where John just hears a voice from heaven. Whether that be Jesus or God, they're the same one. He hears this voice. But however you look at it, whether it was God the Father to His Son Jesus to an angel, or whether it was Jesus to John or, or an angel to John, this book came from God to John. And no matter the various different ways and means that God chose to give him this message, it was all inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, as all Scripture is. But I want you to notice something interesting. In chapter 1, verse 1, notice what it says at the end of the verse. And he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John. If you don't mind underlining in your Bible, underline that word signified, because that's an important, significant word, if you will. This word signified. It means to show by a miracle or a sign, or a wonder, or a picture. And that is why you will see lots of symbolism in the book of Revelation to impart spiritual truth to us. God uses a lot of symbols and pictures to signify the message. But again, let me, let me say this to you. The book of Revelation was not intended, as some view it, to be a symbolic puzzle to solve, but rather a spiritual preview of things to come. And God didn't give us these symbols and pictures to confuse us as believers, but to help us understand better what He was trying to tell us as we see throughout Scripture. Much of the symbolisms are easy to figure out when you compare them with the Old Testament. There are over 300 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. And if you will just go and compare Scripture with Scripture, you'll see a lot of the symbols in Revelation are clearly explained in other parts of the Bible, and we can understand what those symbols and pictures are. The symbolisms not only convey information to us and spiritual truth, but I think one of the reasons God chose to use symbols and, and encourage John to use symbols in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, is because symbols and pictures arouse emotion in us, don't they? You, you've heard the saying, a picture's worth thousand words. And so there's a lot of pictures to help us understand the magnitude of what is going to take place at the second coming of Christ. We know that we're going to study in detail there's going to be a dictator that's going to rule the world uh, during the tribulation period, also known as the Antichrist. And John had the responsibility of describing this world dictator, this antichrist. And he could have just said there's going to be a world dictator that's going to rule and he's going to be really mean and evil. But instead, he used symbolism, a more powerful description, and he called him a beast. And you think of a beast, and that picture right there says a thousand things to us of what this guy is, is going to be like. I want to take a moment here to uh, talk about how we should approach our study to the book of Revelation. This book has been studied by many Bible scholars, by many churches, uh, individuals, uh, and, and 
A lot of people, as we've said before, are afraid of this book because they can't figure it out and it's confusing and, and, and they, they get off on, on those minor details and miss the obvious as we talked about. And so there are basically, Bible scholars have come up with four different approaches, how people approach the book of Revelation. And I want you to understand these four approaches because this is where a lot of people get messed up in the book of Revelation when you do not properly approach the book of Revelation in your study of it just as this can affect your study of any book of the Bible. And I want you to understand how we as a church at the Orchard Church are going to approach a study in the book of Revelation as God laid it out. Let me give you these four common approaches. The first one is called the preterist viewpoint. This is one way you could study the, the, the book of Revelation. It's called the preterist viewpoint. Uh, preter, praetor, comes from the word Latin word past. Basically, this approach believes that everything in the book of Revelation already happened in the first century. That everything we read already happened in the first century and there's nothing else left to happen. Now, you can just go back and look at the history of the world and look at the things of the book of Revelation, and I don't know how anybody could approach the book of Revelation and think that all the things in here happened in the first century. Now, we're going to learn about the seven churches. That happened in the first century, but there's a whole lot of other things that you go, we've never seen that happen before. So that's one view, and if you just approach this book of Revelation as a historical book and think that all the things John wrote about already happened in the first century, you're going to get really messed up as you study the book of Revelation. Let me give you another viewpoint that it's close to the preterist view, but slightly different. It's called the historical viewpoint. The historical viewpoint, and there's a lot of people who study the book of Revelation with this viewpoint. It basically believes that the things in Revelation didn't just take place in the first century, but they have all taken place before the year 2000, or even the 1900s. They believe they've already taken place, so everything we read about here has already happened. Some of them, this is where people would say, you know, that, that Hitler was the Antichrist. And yet, he was a type of Antichrist, I think we could agree, but there are a lot of things this book describes about the Antichrist that never happened with Hitler. And so this historical viewpoint, I believe, is also very flawed. And I don't know how anybody could view this book and think that everything that we're reading here has already happened because there's no evidence to support that kind of approach to the study of the book of Revelation. But we need to understand these because there's people that approach it that way and they get messed up in what this book is really all about. Let me give you another approach. And this is one that messes a lot of people up. And, and I brought this in now because we just talked about all the symbols and pictures that we're certainly going to see in the book of Revelation. And that is the, the spiritual or allegorical viewpoint as we approach the book of Revelation. This approach basically spiritualizes everything and it takes nothing in the book of Revelation literally. In other words, they just see it as one big mythical story. Uh, there's no real prophecy to be fulfilled. It never really happened in history or never will. It's just a bunch of pictures and symbols. Then we might get some practical spiritual truth, but there's nothing literal. There's not literally going to be an Antichrist. There's not literally going to be a second coming of Jesus. There's not literally going to be a removal of the church called the rapture. There's not literally going to be, you know, the plagues and, and the vials and the trumpets and all of those things. And they just spiritualize everything in the book of Revelation as one big picture, but nothing is literal. If you approach the book of Revelation that way, you're going to get really messed up and probably be really surprised someday. Because we believe it is more than just a, a book full of pictures and stories and symbols and you know, cool stories and things like that. And then there's a, another viewpoint, another approach to the book of Revelation, which we'll call the literal viewpoint. 
Now this is unbelievable that people would approach the book of Revelation with this viewpoint. This approach actually takes the book of Revelation at face value and believes what God has said and written down. Can you imagine that? I'm obviously being very facetious. And I got some news for you. You know, if you're coming here for this study and you want to know how we're going to approach the study of the book of Revelation here at the Orchard Church, we're going to approach it from a literal viewpoint. We are a literal church. We approach the book of Revelation in our study just like we approach all the other 65 books of the Bible. We take God at His word and what He has said. My daughter just this week, Caitlin, said, Dad, do you really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale? And I said, yeah, I absolutely do believe that. Or was. And Jonah's sitting here, he said, I was. Different Jonah. We believe that. Just like we believe there really was a Noah's Ark. Just like we believe this world really was flooded by water. Just like we believe all the stories of the Bible. Just like we believe Daniel was really in the lion's den. And God closed his mouth. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace. And God saved them from that. And just like God parted the Red Sea. And I could go on and on and on. Do we believe those stories were real? Absolutely we do. And that's exactly how we're going to approach our study in the book of Revelation. Now, having said that, we do recognize and realize that there are a lot of symbols and pictures in the book of Revelation. And figurative language. And and we will approach those, and those that are figurative and symbolic, we'll explain that, or we'll say that's a picture. And, And if you look at it in its context, you can usually figure out what is literal and what's a picture, and and when you compare Scripture with Scripture. But most of the book of Revelation is literal. And we will take it literally unless God tells us to do otherwise. Is that okay? If not, then you probably don't want to go through the book of Revelation with us. Because we believe every word of God is pure. And we believe what God says He will do, He will do. Most of the symbolic language that trips people up in the book of Revelation is interpreted in the Bible itself, if you just look around. Uh, Let me just give you a for instance real quick. And I can tell you right now, we're probably not going to finish this today, so we'll come back next week. But I don't want to rush through this. And I don't think you want me to. Look at verse 12. You see in verse 12 uh, some symbols. John said, then I... I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of God. And now you start seeing all of these pictures. And he he talks about in verse 16. Look at verse 16. I saw in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a two-edged sword. So you see John is seeing these pictures, these lampstands and these stars. And wow, what do these lampstands and stars mean? we got to figure that out. This is some deep truth, deep meaning we got to figure out. Well, if you just read on. To verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Here it is. Jesus is going to tell you what the picture is. The seven stars are the angels, the messengers, the pastors of the seven what? Churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. You see right there. The picture is explained. If you just look around, it's, it's all there. You've heard me say this many times. And if you haven't, you need to remember this. The best commentary on the Bible that you can go out and buy and get. People ask me all the time, you know, what's your favorite commentary? What's your favorite commentator? I'm going to give it to you. Are you ready? You're going to want to write this down. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Now there are other good commentaries out there. I'm not saying you don't read those, look at those. There are guys I respect that I read. But I always first look at the Bible. 
And most of the time, if you just look around, God explains it. It's right. There's one, one right there, and we'll see these throughout the book of Revelation. If we just compare Scripture with Scripture. There, you know, and if we can't find it in the book of Revelation, there's good chances we can find it in other areas of the Bible. Notice in verse 16 right here, check this out. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And I've heard people teach this, Jesus is going to come back, and when he comes back, there's going to be his big old sword sticking out of his mouth, and he's going to be swinging it, knocking people down, cutting people up. Come on. You say, well then what is this sharp two-edged sword? Have you ever read the book of Ephesians? Chapter 6. The armor of God. And the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. The sword of the Spirit. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. You know what Jesus is going to use to defeat the enemies when he returns? He doesn't need an army. He doesn't need a sword. He doesn't need a gun. It's his words. These are the same words that spoke the universe into order. That's all the power you need. Amen, church? People get weird on this stuff. It's not that hard. It's really not. And we're going to take a little literal approach to our study of Revelation, except where symbolism is obviously presented, and there will be some places like that. Let me give you another one. We've looked at the title. We've looked at the author. Let's talk about the readers. Who was this written to originally? Now we believe that all scripture is for us today. Amen? And, and, and although not all the Bible was written to us, all the Bible is for us. But who was it written to originally? There were was, there was some readers, some people that John wrote this to. And we find it right here in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the, say it, seven churches which are in Asia. <coughs> Excuse me. That's who it's written to. This was originally written and sent to seven local churches in Asia Minor. When we had it on the map, I don't know, we'll try to blow that up a little bigger as we get into the churches in the next couple of weeks. Um, there were actually, historically, seven literal churches in Asia Minor, and that was specifically who this was originally written to, to those churches. It's interesting in the Bible that Paul wrote seven letters to seven different churches. John wrote a letter to seven different churches. Interesting that number seven keeps coming up. Now it's going to be exciting the next few weeks because we're going to study in detail the message that Jesus had for those seven churches. Some things they were doing well, some things they needed to improve on. It's going to be very practical for us corporately as a church to make sure we're doing what Jesus tells us to do. And if there's correction needed that we apply those things both as a church and both as individuals. Oh thanks. Man these guys are sharp. They're on the ball. Yeah here's the seven churches and you can see them right here. Um, they're, they're numbered one, two, Three, four, five, six, seven. Those are where the seven churches were located that we're going to be looking at and studying in detail. But that's who this original message was sent to. But any believer can profit from studying this book. It's not just for the seven churches. Here's one reason we know why. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed is the seven churches. Is that what it says? Nope. This is for everybody. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. You see, there's a special blessing 
given to those who read and study and keep the book of Revelation. I don't believe that special blessing was exclusive to just the seven churches 2,000 years ago. I believe it is also a blessing promised to the Orchard Church today. I also believe that it is a special blessing promised to you today as you study and you read and you apply and put into practice this amazing book of prophecy. You know, there are a lot of common misconceptions about the book of Revelation. One of them being that this book is too confusing, too difficult to understand. I know churches that would never dare study the book of Revelation because they're afraid that people can't get it, they can't understand it, that it'll just confuse them. But that makes no sense. Because why would God tell us there's a special blessing if we study and read and apply the book of Revelation if it's too confusing to understand? It's not too confusing to understand. It's not too difficult to apply. I mean, this is the only book that I know of where this special blessing is promised. God wants us to read this book. God wants us to study this book. God wants us to apply this book and receive the special blessing. Just by you being here this morning and being a part of this study, I believe God is going to bless you in some way as you go out of here and you keep it and you apply it to your life. Let's remember the blessing is not in hearing and reading. The blessing is in keeping and doing, as it is with all scriptures. Amen? Amen. With all scriptures. If you're here just to study this as a historical lesson or learn about some cool prophecies and you don't plan to walk out the doors and do anything with this in in your marriage, in your family, and with your neighbors, then you know what? You're just wasting your time. There's no blessing in that. Matter of fact, there might be the opposite of blessing in that. Because we are accountable for what we study and we read. How we apply it to our lives. I believe there's a scripture, actually, I know there's a scripture that tells us it's better to not have heard and listened to and learned the Word of God if we're not going to apply it. It's better if we didn't know because we're accountable to whom much is given, much is required. I want you to also notice this, blessed is he who reads. This is one of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Beatitudes, when we think of the Beatitudes, that's the blessed are the poor, blessed are... We tend to think of the Beatitudes, the seven that Jesus uh, gave us on the Sermon on the Mount. But as you know, there's seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. We'll point them out as we go through. Here's the first of seven. You're going to find seven different times where God says, Blessed are you if you do this. Blessed are you if you hear this. Blessed are you. And there's seven of them right here in the book of Revelation. And again, you're going to get tired of hearing seven because it's throughout the book of Revelation. It's an important number in the Bible. We talked about it last week. It's the number, God's number of completion and perfection. And in Revelation, God's going to tell us how He's going to complete His work and usher in His perfect, eternal kingdom. Now, why did God send this book, though, to the seven churches originally? Why why did He give this vision to John and say, this is so important, I want you to share this with seven churches? You know, why did John give it to these seven? Well, one, because God told him to, and you should do what God tells you to do. But one of the the reasons is, I believe this, it wasn't, as some try to teach, it wasn't just because the seven churches were curious about end time events. That was not the reason. It was because they were facing intense persecution because of their faith. Many of them, like John, you know, were were being persecuted. And God gave this this letter or this book of the Bible, Revelation, this letter to go to the seven churches to encourage them and bring them hope. And some of the churches needed correction. Because as we all know, sometimes when we're going through trials in our life, we're tempted to stray from God. 
And that happened with some of the churches. And so this was written originally to encourage and bring hope to the churches that were trying to stand for Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture that hated Jesus and hated the Word of God and hated the Gospel. A lot like our culture today. And as these churches received this book, it would give them great strength, hope, and encouragement. And I want to say this to you guys, and you'll probably hear me say it several times. I've heard already some people say, Oh, I know we're studying the book of Revelation, but I'm a little nervous. I'm a little scared. That book freaks me out. Listen, y'all, i got some great news for you. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you don't have to be afraid of anything in the book of Revelation. This is not something that believers should be afraid of, or scared of, or nervous about. When you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're a believer and you're a Christian, this is a book we can find incredible strength and hope and encouragement because we know the end of the story. And that is so important. I hope you'll find encouragement and hope and strength from this book, just like the seven churches did back in Asia Minor. Let's go one more and we'll close with this one. I figured I wouldn't get through all these today. Let me give you the dedication. Who's the book of, of, of Revelation dedicated to? Uh, you know, I, I, was, I was reading this week about an author who had written a lot of books. And one of his friends one day said to him, he said, Hey, you're going to have to stop writing books because you're going to run out of people to dedicate them to. <laughs> kind of funny. But John had no problem figuring out who to dedicate the book of Revelation to. Look at verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen means so be it. And what we see here in verses 4 through 6 is John begins by addressing the entire Trinity. Some people say you can't find the Trinity in the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. You can go to the first book of the Bible in Genesis. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And you see it throughout the Bible and you see the Trinity right here addressed. John first talks about Him, God, the one who was and is and is to come. And he, he talks about the Father and then he talks about the Spirit. And notice he talks about the seven spirits. Now that may trip some of you up. You go, wait a minute, I've always been taught there's just one Spirit. There is only one Spirit. And if you go, compare Scripture with Scripture, do it later. Go, I, give you, I gave you the reference, Isaiah 11.2. You'll find in Isaiah, he talks about the Spirit has a sevenfold ministry to us. And I believe that is what he's talking about here. He's not saying there's seven different spirits of God. There's only one spirit of God. But he manifests himself in seven different ways and seven different ministries. And you can go check that out later. And so you see God the Father. You see God the Spirit. But then you see him really focus in verse 5 and 6 on who? Jesus Christ. The third person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, his Son. I want you to understand again. Revelation is dedicated to Jesus Christ. That's who John dedicated this book to. 
Because that's who this book is about. All of the Trinity is present, but it's specifically about the revelation of Jesus. That's how God and the Spirit chose it to be. In verse 5, the first part of the verse, uh, notice he calls Jesus Christ here, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Some people read that and they say, Whoa, does that mean Jesus was the first person to rise from the dead? Well, if you know the Bible, was Jesus the first person to rise from the dead? No, he wasn't. Jesus rose several people from the dead. There are people in the Old Testament that were risen from the dead. It doesn't, this firstborn from the dead doesn't mean he was the first one who was raised from the dead. It's a title of honor and preeminence. That's what that title is. We can understand this today when we refer to the uh, wife of the President of the United States as the First Lady. Now, is she the First Lady to be the wife of the President of the United States? No. But she has the title First Lady. It's a, it's a title of honor. It's a, it's a title of preeminence and position. So that's exactly what John is using here when he says first born from the dead. Jesus wasn't the first, but he's the most important one to be raised from the dead. And now why did John choose the third person of the Trinity? Why did he choose Jesus Christ to dedicate this book to? Well, he tells you right here in verse 5. And from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the, wor- the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. He chose to dedicate this book to Jesus because Jesus has done so much for us. Nobody has done as much for us or will ever do as much for us as what Jesus has done for us. He loved us. He washed our sins. He forgave our sins. He freed us from our sins and our bondage in sin. He made us a kingdom, the Bible says, of priests who will rule and reign with Him one day for a thousand years and be with Him in heaven for all eternity. And that's the emphasis of Revelation. I can't think of anybody better to dedicate the book of Revelation to than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And neither could John. And that's who this book is dedicated to. But how should we respond to the book of Revelation? We'll pick up the rest of these next week. And I hope you'll be back for them. You know, James tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. A lot of people want to hear the book of Revelation. They want to study it. But not as many want to apply it to their life. And I want to say right here at the beginning as we study this book, we shouldn't study prophecy, any prophecy, and specifically the prophecy of Revelation. We shouldn't study prophecy merely to satisfy our curiosity. That should not be the main reason we study it. We need to approach this book as wonders and worshipers of Jesus Christ who sits on a throne. And not just as academic students. You see, the prophetical of this book must find its way into the practical of our lives. Or we're really wasting our time. If you agree, say yes. yes. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says this. I'll quote it for you. And Peter was talking in the context of the return of Christ. He said, but the day of the Lord will come. There are a lot of people who question, is it ever going to come? And he said, it will come. As a thief in the night, which the heavens and the earth will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, and any time you see the word therefore in your Bible, you need to ask the question, what is it? Therefore. And he says, therefore, because Jesus is coming again, 
Since all these things will be dissolved, listen to what he says, what manner of persons ought we to be? How should it change our lives? And he goes on to say, in all holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Number one, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, man, this study should get you real excited that Jesus is coming back. He's coming for us. We get to be His bride. We get to be ushered into His eternal kingdom. We get to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years. We get to come back on some white horses and kick some butt. It's cool. It's good. We get to be on a winning team. But also, right now, until that happens, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be a witness. We need to share our faith with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our family and friends that do not know Christ. Because if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a very scary book. And there are some very scary, horrible things that are going to happen to the people who are left behind. And we don't want that to happen to anyone. And most importantly, neither does God. And He's chosen us to be a witness. So people can come to faith in Jesus Christ and not have to face any of the horrible things that we'll read in this book. Amen? This book ought to challenge us like never before to share our faith. Invite people to church. You've you got people that are, that are not believers that they'll come because they're interested in this book and that's where it'll start, but they'll hear every Sunday how they can accept Christ. You can share with your faith with them. You know, invite them to these things. We, the things we do in our church, you know, we had Orange Life for our children's ministry. We had almost 175 came out. Invite families to that. We're having a fall festival. Why are we doing that? So we can reach this community for Christ so they're not left behind to face the things that we're going to study. It ought to challenge us believers to get busy because time is running out. And if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and maybe you are afraid of these things and scared of this book and all that, it's only because you've not accepted Christ. And if you accept Christ, you don't have to be afraid of these things because you're going to be on the right side and the right team and you're, it's going to all be good. It's all going to be glorious. It's all going to be wonderful. We're going to be in a place where we're going to read that He's going to wipe away all the tears from our eyes. and There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more sorrow. And there's going to be no more death. Everything you wish this world and life was, you can have someday in eternity if you know Jesus Christ. And we're going to read about those amazing things and study them in this book. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, accept Christ. Do it now. Right at the beginning of this study. So as we go through this, you can enjoy and rejoice in all the promises that are for the believers in this book and the encouragement and hope that we find in the book of Revelation. And let me tell you one other thing. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that if you are not a believer, the Bible says you do not have the Holy Spirit of God in you. That's what the Bible says. And that the things of the Word of God are only understood as the Spirit of God inside of believers reveals it. Right, church? So if you think you're going to approach a study in the book of Revelation and figure this out from a human standpoint, you will not. You'll be confused. You'll be scared. You'll be freaked out. It won't make any sense to you. God designed it that way. So if you really want to understand this book, receive Jesus Christ today so He can put His Spirit in your heart and your life and then He will open your eyes and reveal to you the truths of this book because only believers can really understand it. So do that now at the beginning of this study. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Will your heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment?